Welcome again to Exploring the Scriptures presentation on Christians and the Gospel with Dr. Ron Bartholomew. Here now is Dr. Bartholomew. Welcome to class. Um, we've had some several things happen since we had some as we met last. I I want to show this to you before we start. This form that I, that I had go out to the class. It uh, shows that most of you want to stay Christian history. Fifty-four percent want to stay Christian history. Twenty-eight percent want to stay church history. And 17% want to see the Book of Mormon. So I guess for the now, at least, we'll do the we'll do the Christian history and the church history and see what happens. I'm having audio-visual difficulties this morning. Of course, that's what would happen. But we're just going to go ahead anyway. I'm so thankful to my two brethren that are here. especially just got released as bishop. Thank you so much for your service. I can't imagine how you must feel. I know how I felt when I got released, empty and terrible and horrible inside. So I hope it's better for you. But uh, we're we're on our way. We'll just go ahead and start. This is the best we got. I don't know why it's doing what it's doing this morning, but it is. So we're just gonna go ahead. Why would we want to study and understand the doctrine of the apostasy? Well, just like a person would have to understand the fall to gain a sufficient appreciation for the atonement. Same person would have to say understand the doctrine of the apostasy to fully appreciate and understand the doctrine of the restoration. One solves the other. The atonement solves the fall, the restoration solves the apostasy. We will do that in this class. As depressing as it might be for some of you to study what happened to Christianity after the death of Jesus Christ, it is necessary to appreciate the gift of blessings of the restoration, of which I have a firm testimony. I feel like my friends who don't appreciate the understanding of the Restoration don't understand and appreciate it because they don't understand what happened to Christianity. We'll cover the apostasy in its fullness. This will be very discouraging for some of you. You'll hear things that you'll never heard or seen before. That's what makes this class priceless. I expect you have many questions. My address is drronbart.gmail.com. I'll try to answer questions daily. I'll have it there for a minute so you can have a chance to write it down. This is new ground for everybody in this room. No one has studied this before. In fact, I, I don't know another teacher. I can't believe I'm saying this. Maybe I back up. I've never heard of another teacher who, who, who understands the apostasy the way that we're going to present it to you. So, buckle up your seatbelt. Let's go. Relevance to our day. Early Christians took wrong turns based on incorrect assumptions influenced by their contemporary culture. Same thing is happening to us today. If we look at our basic doctrines document on the on the internet, it says the following about the basic doctrines of the church. Number one, the Godhead. We're the only ones that believe this, my friends. No one else does. I can't find anybody else in the world that believes this. There are three separate personages in the Godhead. God, His Son, and the Holy Ghost. Father and the Son have a tangible bodies of flesh and bone, and the Holy Ghost a presence of spirit. We're the only people that I know of that believes that the Father and the Son have tangible bodies of flesh and bones. They were in purpose and doctrine, although they're not the same person. They're perfectly united in bringing to pass the immortality and the life of man. The Father is the supreme ruler of the universe. He's the Father of our spirits. 
He is perfect, has all power, and knows all things. He is a God of perfect mercy, kindness, and charity. His Son, Jesus Christ, is the firstborn of the Father and the Spirit, of the, and, the, and is the only begotten of the Father in the flesh. He is the Jehovah of the Old Testament and the Messiah of the New Testament. He is the sinless in life and made a perfect atonement for the sins of all mankind. His life is a perfect example of how we should live. He was the first person and this was resurrected. He will again gain power and win the millennium. All prayers, blessings, and preservances should be done in his name. The Holy Ghost is the third member of the Godhead. He has this presence of spirit without a body of flesh and bones. He is often referred to as the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Lord, and the Comforter. He bears witness of the Father and the Son, reveals truth of all things, and sanctifies those who repent and are baptized. Now, as simple as that may seem to us, that is not the doctrine the world believes in. They don't believe that about the Godhead at all. And so we have to we have to look at what they believe to, to appreciate the restoration. During the first millennium of Christian history, which was the, where we live in the third millennium now, we most of us were born in the second millennium, the international culture was Greek. It was called Hellenism because the conquest and destruction of the Greek Macedonian Empire. It was not American, it was Greek, it was called Hellenism. A university accepted idea in this culture was named after Plato and was called Platonism. What is Platonism? It was a university believed doctrine. This is what it is. To put it simply, Plato taught and believed the material existence, things made of matter, were inferior to spiritual or intellectual existence, things you can't see, touch, taste, or smell, things of the mind and the spirit. For example, the study of rocks and trees was inferior to the study of music or math. Because you can see rocks and trees, but you can only experience music and math with your mind and your spirit, so they were seen as superior. He also taught and believed that the Greek tradition of multiple gods, called polytheism, was outdated and lacked cultural refinement. Since God was experienced intellectually and spiritually, he could only be known by that expression of the words divine logos, because words are material. Words are not material. Confusing, right? Well, believe it or not, this cultural norm, Plato's teachings about matter and the spirit of polytheism, greatly influenced early Christians' perceptions about Christ and God, the Godhead. Platonism was embraced so widely, near universally, that it led the people to assume that God was a spirit. Spirit was the divine logos. They should not completely refuse or even consider multiple members of the Godhead. So they couldn't believe in multiple members of the Godhead, and they couldn't believe the Godhead had a body. That is wrong. But that's what they believe because of Platonism. One prevalent cultural norm in our day upon which some of our members, students and colleagues, based in correct assumptions or conclusions, is called egalitarianism. The idea that all people are equal and deserve equal rights and opportunities. Now that sounds so good, doesn't it? It sounds perfect. This is deceptive in that it sounds very American and very much a part of Family Father's Planet Agency. Let me talk to you about it for just a second. The reason egalitarianism is wrong is because it teaches that people can do whatever they want. There's no consequence for sin. People can do gay marriage, they can do they can get abortions, they can do whatever they want. All people are equal and deserve equal rights and opportunities, and so everybody should be able to do whatever they want, whenever they want, who with whoever they want, however they want. That's not true. God made rules, he made laws and he'd be kept. 
And although people do have equal rights and opportunities, they also are held accountable for their sins. So egalitarianism is what the current mentality in America is leading so many people to believe in things that are wrong, like abortion and gay marriage. It sounds right, it's just not. However, some terrible things can happen when we allow our assumptions or rejection of doctrine to be influenced by even the best-sounding cultural norms. Section 93, verse 39 teaches the following. And that wicked one cometh and taketh away light and truth through disobedience from the children of men and because of the tradition of their fathers. Of course, that we're going to Satan. He takes away light and truth from us through disobedience. Why? Because of the traditions of our fathers. If culture gets in the way, people make mistakes. They don't do what's right. They don't, they don't believe in the truth. Here's an example. Because of the great problem, we believe our perceptions and our perceptions are based on attractive ideas, and, and even if they aren't correct. Look at Matthew 16. This is, this is the Apostle Peter. He becomes the president of the church after Christ dies. But he's so tied into these false ideas about the Savior that he says the following. Go ahead. Matthew 16, verses 22 and 23. Look, what, look at this perfect example of Peter getting caught up in the ideas of his day that are wrong. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. So, what Peter's buying into is the idea that the Savior is going to be this superhero. He's going to be this majestic, majestic person. Well, he was majestic, but he also died. And so Peter's chastising him for saying that he's going to die, when in fact he really is going to die. And so Peter makes a great, he believes he believes in perceptions and assumptions based on attractive ideas that are correct, but they really aren't. And so he's chastised by the Lord and called the devil himself. So we have the growth of Christianity, but you need to understand that after Jesus and the apostles died, it, it grew up the way I'm going to explain to you today. And that's why there was a need for a restoration. There was an apostasy and there was a need for restoration. How does our story begin? Where does the story begin? Well, it begins with the idea that, that of Platonism, that um, the, the, the God would have to choose the right. The apostles spread the gospels out the Roman Empire. However, the language and culture was Greek because of the influence of the Greek Macedonian conquest of Alexander the Greek and his successors. Thus Hellenization or the greatest of Greek culture permeated the Roman Empire. Even though it's Roman, they believed in it was Greek. The Hellenization of Christianity actually began with the Hellenization of Judaism. First this shows how tricky the devil is. The devil is very, very tricky, my friends. He's going to do everything he can to stop things. The Hebrew Bible is translated into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. It happened in 250 BC. Then Philo Judeus popularized Greek philosophy, transformed the Hebrew scriptures into allegory and translated Jewish thought into Greek philosophical terms. Plato's logos equals the word of God. So he had this, 
this Greek per this this Hebrew person who adopts Greek culture named Philogideus, who popularizes it and translates the scriptures into Greek. As a result, one of the earliest beliefs rejected by those who embraced Greek thought and inevitably by Orthodox Christian thought as well was that God was a glorified material and anthropomorphic human like they had a body. That was one of the first beliefs that was that was um, discarded. Greek philosophers prior to Socrates rejected notions of like human gods made out of mundane matter as they found the idea of being compatible with the, with the idea of Plato. Eventually, Plato also rejected the idea that anything consisting of a material element could be the basis for what is truly real. That's what is meant by the word metaphysics. So, Plato taught that real things can't be seen. They're like music and math. Mundane things that we can see aren't real, like a desk or a chair. See how close this is to the truth, but it's not the truth. Plato believed that as men turned from and ignored the body, using the mind to consider such things as mathematics and philosophy, they could begin to get to meager, but still sort of them as what is truly real. The idea that if you can physics, physically experience something that isn't real became the standard definition of God in Greek philosophy and remains accepted to believe of Orthodox Christianity today. It is interesting. This idea has lasted for 2,000 years. The idea that if you can physically experience something, it isn't real. In Plato's thinking, there are only two dimensions of reality or existence, the intellectual, which is superior, and the physical, which is inferior. This idea that there are only two dimensions of reality is called dualism, and we'll talk a lot about that as we go. Dualism became an important comment of how Christians have historically understood and described God. In his book, The Republic, Plato argued that the only dimension of reality worthy of consideration is the intellectual or the spiritual reality. Therefore, his philosophy taught that humans should distance themselves from the physical senses, from sight, taste, smell, etc. He believed that physical senses affected humans, humans negatively. He taught that the physical senses distorted the true nature of what is true, good, and beautiful, because that that could only be discerned by the intellectual and or the spiritual realm. That sounds good, doesn't it? He asserted that the soul is imprisoned in and clinging to the body and is forced to examine other things as through a cage. He totally saw the body as negative. In addition, Hellenistic ideas about human biology reinforce these notions. In Aristotle's Fetology, theories about the fetus, it is the woman who gives the gross bodily material which is acted upon and formed by the male into something of value. He made the superiority of the male gender emphatic and divinity when he said, thus the physical part, the body, comes from the female, and the soul, the spiritual part, comes from the male. As a result, Christian doctrine has historically included the notion that Christ's spirit, which is made by the same eternal substance as, as in with the Father, condescended to inhabit a physical moral body made by a woman. This is known as the Incarnation, which literally means God condescended to the earth to take upon himself a body. 
because it was believed that the male gender, like God, provided the spiritual and intellectual, the soul, the part of human conception, superior to the male gender, became from the establishing culture, philosophy, and scientific understanding, and Christian doctrine. The men were superior. That is simply not true, but that was that's always been for, for hundreds of years. Before your development, the thousand-year period characterized by the hellization of the Christian kind of the deity, we'll first examine more complicated history of the ideas that germinated from the first Christian centuries. Significantly, the Latter-day Saints, be just, just, just having just passed, be Professor David Paulson has convincingly demonstrated as contemporary theologians, Stephen Webb acknowledges, quote, divine embodiment would have been part of the theological mainstream prior to Origen and Augustine. The fact that God had a body was prior to those two people. Let me give you an example. So if you're still with me, we've talked about the physicality of the body and how it, in Christian doctrine, the body is bad, the spirit is good. The body is part of man, the spirit is part of God. It's about being spiritual, not being physical. Let's take Tertullian, for example. He's a Catholic, not Roman Catholic, but Catholic in the general sense of the word, meaning universal, embracing theologian. He lived from 160 AD to 225 AD. He was the first theologian to use Latin instead of Greek, for example. In his writing here for De God's body as corpore, meaning that he believed that it had a distinct materiality and even a certain tangibility. Therefore, Joseph Smith's conception of deity was, in fact, a restoration of ideas formerly held regarding God's body from the beginning. Despite the fact that early Christians believed that God had a body, the fact that later on other theologians rejected God's anthropomorphism, meaning that God, he had a human body like, like we have, materiality that it was made of matter is seen in the early Christian fathers who replaced their own tradition of God as a special man, clothed with the material body with Greek philosophical notions. But right here you can see, for example, some of the written by Albert Einstein. He says, I can't then believe in this concept of an anthropomorphic God who has the powers of interfering with these natural laws. As I said before, the most beautiful and most profound religious emotion that we can express is the sensation of the mystical. And this mysticality is the power of the true science. That is ridiculous. But yet that's what the world believes. God can't be understood. A good example of the rejection of anthropomorphism and materiality in Christian thought is found in the writings and teachings of early church fathers, Clement, Origen, and Justin. Now we're going to look at some religious fathers who really embraced Greek philosophy first, so then they made the idea of God second. Now, of course, they had to wait for the apostles to die because the apostles all saw Jesus and they touched him, so they knew he had a real body. Justin Martyr taught that the Greek philosophers such as Socrates and Plato had partially understood this as the Logos was actually the person of Jesus Christ the word that was become flesh. John chapter 1 verse 1 says the following. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. See, we're making, we're making God, Logos, I'm sorry, Theos, the Word, Logos. Why? 
These philosophers tend to believe that the divine logos consisted of a fire that came from another fire, but then a reduced substance of the original fire. They literally believe this, that, that God was a fire, and then he started another fire without losing his original fire. Clement of Alexandria taught that Christianity could only be understood in the context of Greek philosophy. He had no problem with the Gnostics' higher teachings and found God threefold, God's threefold nature, as taught in the doctrine of the Trinity actually had its origin in Plato's teachings. Origin, origin was an avowed Platonist who taught the inner truth of Jesus could only be understood if one embraced the notion of Jesus being the Word made flesh, Logos. He was the Word. Why the Word? Because you can't touch it. Words are immaterial. So that's why Jesus was the Word. He taught that the divine logos, Jesus' words, saved us, not the suffering, death, and resurrection. Because what we call the atonement was wrought by his body, which was inferior to his words and teachings. He also embraced the idea that Christ's teachings were clearly to help us escape the material world. And the, the true spiritual remnant. Now, see, as I'm, I'm not quoting Mormons, I'm quoting non Mormons because this is a non Mormon belief. Irvin and Sunquist. Sunquist is a Catholic. Irvin is a is a Protestant, and they wrote they wrote a, they wrote a book called the History of the Christian Movement, which I'll be quoting from extensively. And they are not Mormons; they're not LDS in any way, shape, or form. Monotheism: the notion that there can only be one God was attractive in the Hellenistic world because the teachings of such people as Plato and Aristotle pointed away from the many gods of Greek and Roman mythology, because they believed in a unifying single supreme being or force, the Word. This is because they believe that the ultimate power in the universe, the Logos, or divine reason, was like the flame of fire, a small piece of which could be found in every individual, all coming from the same flame of fire. We all had this fire in us. Since all these sparks of divinity came from the same source, the divine Logos, there could only be one God. Each of the Greek schools of philosophy came to emphasize this by the time of Jesus. There was only one God because he had a flame of fire that would live in each of us and there's only one. It's ridiculous. So what happened to the cultural philosophies and influences? Without central authoritative leadership provided by prophets and apostles, they're dead. Several theories of men regarding who and what Jesus was emerged in the first thousand years of Christianity. To the right there we've got the, the different theories which we'll talk about in great detail. The dominant group of early Christians called themselves pro-Orthodox Catholic, which means they believed they held the, to the earliest original traditions. This group eventually decided that all of these different theories about who and what Jesus was were what they called heresies, anti-Catholic whole church doctrines, their false doctrines. These decisions were the result of intense, elongated debates and were called ecumenical councils. The word ecumenical means people with different ideas coming together so they can be unified moving forward. Instead of prophets and apostles receiving revelation, they just got together and talked about it, and they argued for weeks until everybody was on the same page and, they would, and then they would depart. Ecumenical councils. Let's take a look at the first three. The first two centuries. Jesus came to be known from the material world created by a demiurge called Yaldabaoth, 
physiology, material God knows us, not the atonement, material saves us. Gnostics believes Jesus only experienced that he only appeared to everybody. Dostas believed him he was a human who had the Christ spirit did, um, descend upon him. Also in the late second century, you have the Jewish belief that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, sent to fill Jewish scriptures to and for the Jews only, and continue keeping certain aspects of the law of Moses, but believe that Jesus was a great and final sacrifice that, for sin. They had their own gospel of Matthew, and they believed Jesus was adopted by God because of his obedience. So he wasn't God's son, he was just adopted because he was a good man. And finally, you have the Marcionites. In complete opposition to the Ebionites, the Semitic, anti-Old Testament, Jesus was not Jehovah, he wasn't a Jew, therefore he did not create and was not created. Jesus, so you have the factions breaking off to different things. Well, let's go to different theories about who and what Jesus wasn't be thought of in chronological order. These different theories of man are referred to as Christologies, which means different theories about who and what Jesus is. The first three so-called Christological heresies or philosophies are, number one, the Gnostics and Docetism. This lasted for two centuries. That's a long time, that's 200 years. A demiurge, something between God and the devil, a lower god called the Aldabaoth, created the material world which we live in, which they believed to be a cosmic catastrophe, and that Jesus was sent to the, by the real God to save us from this material world the way in which we live. We live. They believe Jesus imparted his personal knowledge to some, but not all, to imparted this Gnosis to the Gnostics. Only those who receive this Gnosis by revelation can be saved from material creation. So to them, Salvation meant learning how, through special knowledge, to escape the evils of the body and the material world. It was about escaping the material world. Gnostics saw themselves as the intellectual and spiritual elite among Orthodox Christian congregations. Most Gnostics believed that Jesus was only appeared to have a body. He was a hologram. Others believed he was a human who had the Christ spirit to send away at his baptism only to abandon him later on the cross before the suffering of the man Jesus. So the Christ never suffered. Gnosticism was a spiritual belief system that arose about the same time as Christianity, so about the time of Jesus. And what Gnosticism taught was that material things were evil and that spiritual things were good. Now, we know that's contrary to what the Bible teaches us, because the Bible teaches us in Genesis 1 that when God made the creation, he said it was good. And so material things then can't all be bad, because we know that God created plants and animals and the world and things like that, and he said those things were good. So right there, Gnosticism has one strike against it, because we know that material things can be good. Not only that, but in Luke 8, we know that he talks about evil spirits, the gospel, of Luke talks about evil spirits. So we know that spiritual things can be evil and material things can be good. So we know that those beliefs right there are wrong. But even more critical than that is that they thought instead of the gospel being repenting and trusting in Jesus, 
They thought that you had to have some sort of special knowledge in order to get to heaven, in order to be saved. So the Gnostic teachings were definitely contrary to what the Bible taught. So, if someone tries to teach you these Gnostic beliefs, remember to check them against the Bible. There is a lot of early church fathers, including Irenaeus, who taught against the Gnostic belief system. I hope this helps and Gnosis meant knowing, and sometimes it's translated as knowledge. But in fact, it was that's not how Paul used it. He freely used the word 37 times, Jesus, and no doubt this is what he meant to convey to early Christians. For them, it was exactly what he would translate as a sure testimony of Christ in his gospel. That which we would normally attribute to especially ordained pre-designing leaders. Here we see that Gnosis is not the normal result of human thought or research or reason. I am an ordinary man, Paul says, as far as logos, that is education and mental power, etc., is concerned. But I am certainly not such in regard to the Gnosis, to the knowledge about Christ. How can I help you, he says in, to the Corinthians, if I don't speak to you in Revelation or in Gnosis or prophecy or deduction as part teaching? Here the Gnosis is the knowledge acquired only by Revelation and not in ordinary ways. Paul reminds the Colossians that the Gnosis is hidden away and that not everyone who has it claim not everyone who claims to have it has it. So we have a true Gnosis, a certain knowledge entrusted to the general authorities of the church after the resurrection and for you know to no one else. This is precisely the knowledge that the Gnostics later claimed to have, that Jesus was the Christ. From the tales and contents of early of relatively Recent and found Gnostic writings, it is plain that their special boast was to possess, quote, what Christ taught to the apostles of the resurrection during his 40 ministry, which was also subject to apocryphal 40 literature, which speaks of prayer circles, robes, signs, and tokens. Note it well. As long as they were living apostles, these impostors had to be kept in a place by apostolic authority. They, they, they couldn't come out. As long as people were still alive who had actually heard the preaching of the Lord, these deceivers could not bring could not bring their claims, but lurked in dark corners, biding their time. And that time came. As soon as the apostolic generation passed away, the barriers of apostolic authority were removed. The deceivers had nothing to fear, and overnight the church was formed with them. Says Eusebius. Elsewhere they spring up like mushrooms. Says Arrhenius, and operated a and with complete freedom and, and protection. According to Irenaeus, the Gnostics had caused an immense sensation and gained a huge growing following by the electrifying announcement. They had the Gnosis, revealed knowledge, the wonderful things that the Lord taught Peter, James, and John after the resurrection. He made the claim they were, so to speak, on the spot. They had to deliver. They had to come up with something wonderful, supernatural, same time would correspond to some degree to the widespread rumors and traditions the church has to what Gnosis really was. And so, they welcomed any teaching or practice to combine an air mystery with supposed superior knowledge. For them, God was something beyond the grasp of ordinary Christians, and so, they gave zero lessons and charged money for them. They built up confusing philosophical systems. They practiced ordinary magic and specializing in miracles such as changing wine into blood. This is all according to Arrhenius. They tried to produce supernatural experiences by the use of drugs and stimulants. 
the Rafferth Library's effect to practical writings. The Mark Sister Marriage and Baptism, teaching that water baptism and marriage were not necessary, says the Spirit is everything. Seeing as the apostle for the body says it was made of earth to participate in salvation. The Nazi movement provided a number of important things. First, the gifts of the Spirit cannot be faked. The apostles said them, the Nazis didn't. The Gnostics made desperate, determined efforts to display the powers that the apostles had once enjoyed. But after passing the talented and enthusiastic first generation, the school of San Mangus, who you all remember tried to buy the, Peter, buy the pieces from Peter, they fell back on complex philosophical ideas, mysticism, which ran deep and obscured to the understanding by the rank and file, kept in the darker and the true doctrine necessary for salvation. In the second place, the Nazi affairs showed how terribly the hungry the Christians were for spiritual gifts. They yearned for prophecies, tongues, and marvelous gnosis. Certainly, these are remarkable thing that there never was a formal condemnation of Gnosticism, as it was the case of other heresies, as there were certainly would have been if any apostle or the equivalent of authority had been alive, which they weren't. That's from Hume, they believed prophets and prophet Gnostics, the world of the prophets. So we have the first snafu is the Gnostics. They go away after, say, two centuries. In first, first and second and third John, which is at the very end of the New Testament, so nobody ever reads it, we have the we have the truth about Gnosticism. Notice how closely Satan perverts the divine truth. The truth is good is spirit, evil is matter, including the physical body. The fallen natural man is an enemy to God and is incompatible with deity. That's the truth. Salvation comes by giving the whole of the body, which requires a special knowledge. Gnosis is not the atonement. That's false. Revelation does communicate special divine knowledge, but all can receive it. There are certain secret truths required for recitation, which we can all receive. Third, Jesus only appeared to everybody. God is a spirit. That's false. Jesus had, has a body and a flesh and bones, and... Since Gnosis says this, not the atonement, there is no evil act or sin. He atoned for our sins in his atonement that saves and exalts us. Treating the body harshly and or sinfully is okay because the body is evil and doesn't matter, is false. Our body is a temple of our divine spirit and the Holy Ghost that must be kept clean and worthy. Hope you can see where the devil is going with this. The devil invented Gnosticism to finally teach at the end it was okay to do anything you want with your body, it doesn't matter. We know that is not true. We know that things in the far on the right hand column are true and the things in the left hand column are not true. To convince saints of the heresy, damnable lie or provision of truth that Christ does not have a body because the body is bad, especially not that Thomas saves us. The following things occurred. 1 John verses 1-3 to It's at the end of the Bible, the very right before the, the, the book of Revelation. Is that Jude or John? Okay, good. Yeah, one, one, two, and 3, please. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, of the word of life. For the life was manifested, 
and we have seen it, and bear witness, and shew unto you that eternal life which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. They saw and touched and t- they, 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 they touched him. They knew he was real. In First John chapter 2, verses 20 to 29, this is kind of long, John continues to fight this doctrine of the, of the Gnosis. But ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. I have not written unto you, because ye know not the truth, but because ye know it, and that no life is of the truth. Who is a liar? But he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ, he is Antichrist, that denieth the Father and the Son. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. But he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. Let that therefore, let that therefore abide in you which ye have heard from the beginning. If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, ye also shall continue in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he hath promised us, even eternal life. These things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie. And even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence, and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If ye know that he is righteous, ye know that every one that doeth righteousness is born of him. First John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God? Yes, doth, we are. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Then First John chapter 4, verses 1 to 3 says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth and every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world? It was in the world. Already they were teaching that Jesus didn't have a body. Verse 2 to 15 say the following. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in him, and he in us, because he hath given us of his spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, 
God dwelleth in him, and he in God. There were two gods, God and Jesus, and Jesus is God's son. There was so things that are so fundamental to us were not fundamental to them because of the Gnosis. First John five, verse one and five to thirteen. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and every one that loveth him that begat and every one that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. Begat, begotten. Jesus was the begotten son, he was born. Verse five to thirteen. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he that came by water and blood even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit... He was born, he had a body. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood. And these three agree in one. If we receive the witness of man, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he hath testified of his Son. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record that God hath given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you, that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. God had a Son. It's as simple. His name was Jesus Christ. In St. John chapter 1, verses 5 and 7 and 8, it says the following. 5, 7 and 8. And now I beseech thee, now I beseech thee, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Jesus, Jesus came in the flesh, and if you don't teach that, you're teaching, not teaching the truth. Jude chapter 1, verses 3 to 4 teaches the following. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So you've got all kinds of problems going happening during this time, and Jude and John are attacking them head on. They also are trying to convince them of the heresy that lust is not sin and there's a need to keep the commandments for the atonement of sin. Remember 
the the Gnostics taught that the body doesn't matter, so you can do whatever you want with it. That's not true. First John chapter one verses seven and ten says the following. These first, second, third John can only be understood in the context of the Gnostics, or else it doesn't make sense. It's just just a, a bunch of reading. Go ahead. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. How could we be cleansed from sin if it wasn't for the blood of Christ? Jesus Christ had blood. He was a body. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The the Gnostics were teaching that people can't sin because their bodies don't matter. That's simply not true. First John chapter 2 verses 1 to 6 says the following. My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word in him, verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. Jesus taught people to keep the commandments. The Gnostics taught that it didn't matter what you did with your body. It was just going to, it didn't matter because your only spirit was going to go into the next life. That's simply not true. First John chapter 2, verses 14 and 17 says the following. First John two, fourteen and seventeen. I have written unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you, young men, because ye are strong, and the word of God and the word of God abideth in you, and ye have overcome the wicked one. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. The, the Gnostics were famous for teaching you to keep the commandments. But these churches clearly teach it's important to keep the commandments. First John chapter 3, verses 3 to 10 teaches the following. Chapter 3, verses 3 to 10. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth, transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Isn't it sad that in the first 120 years that Christianity got so off track? People believed it wasn't important to keep the commandments. So John said to teach them to keep the commandments of God. Go ahead, please. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. 
Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed, re for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. Isn't that interesting? See, we read that, think, well, that's great. But if you understand this in the context of the, the, the Gnostic fight for, for truth and righteousness, then it makes perfect sense. Verse 22 to 24 says the following. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him, because we keep his commandments, and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of, the, of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. In chapter 5, verses 2 to 3, he continues to say these following. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. We love God and keep His commandments. That's how we know that we're the children of God. Keep going, please. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous. I don't think John could have said it more clearly that we have to keep the commandments if we believe in Jesus Christ. In verse 17 to 21, he says the following. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. But he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. And we know that we are, out, that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. And we know that the Son of God has come, and hath given us an understanding, that we may know him that is true. And we are in him, that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. In Second John chapter 1, he talks to his wife and he says the following. Verse 6 and then 9 to 11. And this is love that we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment that as ye have heard from the beginning, ye should walk in it. Whosoever transgresseth, transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there any come unto you, and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him God's speed. For he that biddeth him God's speed is partaker of his evil deeds. And then in 3 John chapter 1 verse 11 he says the following. 3 John chapter 1 verse 11. Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil hath not seen God. Isn't it interesting at this early time in church history that John had to teach these to the people because so they would stop being Gnostics? 
In Jude 1, 4, 8, 16, 18, and 19, Jude teaches the following. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking about the Gnostics because they turned the love of God into lasciviousness by teaching that didn't matter what you do with your body. Verse 8. Likewise also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. Verse 16. These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts, and their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. And then verse 18 and 19. How that they told you there should be mockers in the last time, who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. These be they who separate themselves sensual, having not the Spirit. But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. What, what a terrible time they lived in. In the absence of opposing claims of authority, the Nazis won only half a victory. Because even though they had been unable to live up to their electronic promises, no one else could write us genuine Gnosis either, so the great surge of hope and enthusiasm that had carried the Gnostics on his crest subsided in disillusionment and compromise. So they went away. Second, we have the Ebionites. They believed that Jesus was a Jewish Messiah sent to fulfill Jewish scripture and to and for the Jews only. As a result, they continued to keep certain aspects of the law of Moses, but believed since Jesus was the great and final sacrifice for sin, was no longer necessary. They rejected the writings of Paul, he was the apostle to the Gentiles, and they had their own version of the Gospel of Matthew, mostly Jews, most Jewish gospel. They emphasized the importance of keeping the law of and a human Jesus who was adopted by God as his son because of, because of his obedience, fully human son of Mary Joseph, no virgin birth or preexistent Jehovah. Jesus was the adopted son of the Divine Father. What a terrible thing to believe in. So to combat that, you have the Marcionites. In complete opposition to the Yemenites, this more popular sect was anti-creation, anti-Semitic, anti-Jew, anti-Old Testament. Jesus was not Jehovah or a Jew. Therefore, he did not create or was not created. God is love. To become a Christian, you didn't need to become a Jew or keep the love of Moses. In fact, Jesus Love, mercy, grace, forgiveness, redemption came to save the world from the, from the God of the Jews. Cruel, harsh, guilt, punishment, death. They believe Jesus came to save the world from the Jews, the exact opposite of what the uh, Ebionites believed. Marcion's web only had 11 books, 10 Pauline epistles, and the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of the Gentiles. These movements, Gnostics, Ebionites, and Marcionites, fought for dominance at the first and second centuries, but in the end, the Proto-Orthodox, those communities, the original or primitive Jews, what movement went out, and then these three were deemed heretical or, uh, or false doctrines of theologies at this point. However, these two movements were not the only ones that attempted to inform Christian teachings that are lacking. There were many others and who did the same. My friends, this is the beginning of Christian history. It's a lot. I hope, it made, I hope it made sense. If it didn't, email me. I'm pretty good with my email. I'll answer you every day. I want to bear my testimony that the gospel was lost after the death of Jesus and the apostles. 
the Gospels lost the first people that took over were the Gnostics, then the Ebionites, then the Marcionites. They were all wrong. It gets worse from here. It went much worse from here. But understanding the apostasy helps us to appreciate the restoration of our testimony. That's true. I say in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you again for joining us today with another segment with Dr. Ron Bartholomew with his insightful review of Christians and the Gospel. This podcast is presented through the facilities of Golden Gems Radio. We invite you to join us on the internet at www.goldengems.net where you will find presented each week a review of the music and career of one of the great musical artists from the 40s, 50s, and 60s when music was music in the golden days of radio. Please join us again next week with another episode on the Christians and the Gospel with Dr. Ron Bartholomew.